Welcome to Money and Meaning, a podcast where we connect with people around the world who are also working to unlock the power of markets for impact. I'm Janice Dubno, Managing Director at the Sorensen Impact Center. This podcast series is hosted by SOCAP Global and the Sorensen Impact Center. SOCAP Global convenes the largest and most diverse community in impact through live and digital experiences that educate, spur conversation, and inspire investment in positive impact. We work under the leadership of the Sorensen Impact Center, which helps organizations achieve their impact vision. The center is proudly housed at the University of Utah's David Eccles School of Business. Each episode of Money and Meaning features stories of amazing people who are leveraging the power of capital markets for the betterment of people and planet in a just and sustainable way. You'll hear conversations like this at SOCAP 23, our next flagship event held in October 2023 in San Francisco. As a podcast listener, you can save $50 off the current ticket price with the code MONEYMEANING23, that's all caps, M-O-N-E-Y-M-E-A-N-I-N-G-23. Register at SOCAP Global. We hope to see you there. This episode of Money and Meaning features an interactive discussion at SOCAP 22 that I facilitated along with Richard Muller of Impact United, Jeffrey Sear of Raven Indigenous Capital Partners, and Kate Murray of TAS. We discuss innovative approaches and trends in the Canadian impact investing market and how they touch on varied social and environmental issues. Enjoy the conversation. From a perspective of, of, of Canada and what's different, um, and I think I have a bit of a unique perspective having lived down here for part of my life as well. Um, first is, is that the government is a very active player in, in Canada. Um, more so now than, than ever before. We have a federal government that's committed somewhere in the neighborhood of $750 million to um, something called the Social Finance Fund. We have um, provincial initiatives. Um, NBC, Leah and, and her team are part of a, a, a fund, a $500 million eventual fund that spun out of uh, Treasury in BC. Manitoba, if, uh, if you need a geography lesson on where these places are, I'm happy to point at a map. But uh, Manitoba is one of the leading um, policy areas for social impact bonds. They've done about four of them, um, very, very progressive. And, uh, and Quebec, um, in sort of sharp contrast to Florida, um, has actively engaged with their pension funds to invest in ESG as opposed to the opposite. So, so government is a much, uh, much a, a, a partner in many respects and, and, and a very much um, um, bringing money and funding to the table. The other thing about Canada is that there's a dichotomy in Canada. Um, on one level, um, Canada and Canadians are probably some of the most... Um, socially progressive um, people in the world. Uh, the country itself is very diverse uh, multiculturally. Um, but as I say, from a, from, a, from a dichotomy standpoint of view, our, our economy historically has been extractive between uh, forestry and uh, oil and gas. And so we have this kind of strange interplay between the new economy that many of us would love to see take hold and take shape 
and the reality that that our wealth traditionally has come from extractive industries and from um, you know from all stand from all points of view we have a, a you know a, an affluent country and a high standard of living as a result of those extractive industries so that's that's a dichotomy that's playing out in, in a number of different ways and then you know I think as as you'll hear from these two wonderful other panelists there is a real um, drive and and uh, uh, overall level of commitment to innovation um, and I'll let them obviously talk about their projects and their involvement but I you know for example there's a guy in Montreal an Anglican priest who's working on repurposing churches across Canada for social purpose um, and running of all things circus events uh, in in some of the venues there's a great project in Montreal with um, a group of foundations who've combined their efforts to use their public equity side of their portfolio to bring uh, advisors to the table and ask them what they think about ESG and off, off those interviews select an advisor to actually manage that pool of money on their behalf. So some very in innovative thinking. So those are three things that I think are different. Uh, and Richard, can you talk a little bit about how Impact United is, is helping to move um, this forward? Sure. Thanks, Janet. So, so Impact United is is something that um, was launched last year out of an organization called SVX. SVX is one of Canada's leading impact advisory services firms. Um, I was a client of theirs and um, felt that there was a need, especially during the depths of COVID, for more opportunities for investors to connect with each other, whether they're individuals, institutions, family offices, and foundations. So. We have been actively curating and, and involving um, the now about 250 uh, members um, in that community. Um, we look for opportunities to drive collective action. There are 10 leading foundations who we help meet quarterly to look at deals, manage due diligence collectively. So there's a real collective spirit to it. There's also a thought leadership component to it. Uh, we are um, about to embark on a series of roundtable discussions in Vancouver and then in Toronto to identify what's holding back venture capital from supporting Indigenous-led enterprises. And Jeff obviously has a perspective on that as well. Um, and so that's another one. And then the last one that I would refer to, Janice, is a real commitment to education and learning. We launched uh, last month what we call the Impact United Academy. Um, welcome you to check that out. Uh, we've put our first three courses up on that platform in partnership with some of the leading universities and practitioners. So, you know, we're operating at a number of different levels to try to create more connective tissue in the country around the investor side of things. Great, thanks Richard. So I'd like to invite um, Jeffrey and Kate to, to comment also on how is Canada different from your perspectives? Canada different from my perspective. I think that um, something that's very uniquely Canadian is what Richard was mentioning around the multiculturalism and the way that we do celebrate um, people from all different backgrounds. And um, in the work that I do with TAS, we are a family-owned business uh, founded by uh, Iranian refugees. And our business is actually incredibly diverse and it reflects the diversity in our city of Toronto. Um, we have over 50% women in a real estate firm, which is quite rare, and over 60% BIPOC representation. So I think that it comes out in the fabric of our businesses and the way that we go about things. 
good afternoon, everybody. Hopefully you can hear me. Um, so how is Canada different? We're really good at hockey. No, just um, I would say, you know, from an indigenous uh, fund manager perspective, what we see is a sort of uh, a inflection point in the indigenous community where you're, you're pivoting from a surviving mode from colonization to a thriving mode. And uh, what comes out of that, in my perspective, is um, A, there's a lot of government engagement in that, which is helpful. It's not always the way you want it, but hey, they're engaging. That's good. Um, and uh, a real innovation culture uh, amongst Indigenous peoples and Indigenous communities looking to uh, not only uplift themselves, but their community members and their, their family members. And uh, I come back to that. We're, we're all related. Uh, category and I think what it's doing is causing uh, Main Street capital uh, and Main Street business to take a different look at the indigenous reality as it forms part of that DE&I kind of bulk of activities that's been emerging over the last couple of years um, and on the indigenous side where it differs uh, a little bit to the US and we invest in the US and we can talk about that in a minute is um, we've had significant effort by residential school survivors in Canada to really move the marker on the history of colonialism. Uh, this would be, you would equate to boarding schools in, in the US, um, where we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And what it did is, you know, um, well, what it's doing, I suppose, is really opening the eyes uh, of a lot of Canadians uh, about uh, the colonial history, the extractive industry, not just of resources, but extractive of people and extractive of value. And I think that's unique in Canada right now, um, uh, more so than, than in some of the other places. Great. Thanks, Jeffrey. And actually, that's a great segue um, to our next question. You mentioned that the Indigenous community is in an inflection point pivoting from surviving to thriving. So what is Raven's role and mission in this space? And if you could talk both about your work um, at the Raven Impact Fund and ALCO, also outcome-based financing, where you are a leader and an innovator in that space as well. Sure. Um, so Raven's young, first of all, just we're young and we're a very small player um, in, in the space. Um, you know, for, uh, four years ago we started Raven and the concept was can you have Indigenous-led capital uh, filling the capital gap for entrepreneurs and innovators in the Canadian ecosystem. Can it be done? Because it didn't exist. Uh, it doesn't exist in the U.S. as well, by the way. The only place it does exist is within CDFI and Aboriginal financial institutions, which is debt-based financing with some strong limitations on it. And if you're doing high-growth businesses, guess what? It just doesn't work. You need equity in that space. Um, so there were no intermediaries doing that, and we... We tried with a $5 million fund. It ended up being $25 million fund. Now we're on our second fund. In terms of a mission and mandate, you know, if I talk to our partner's team, the co-founders, it's to improve the well-being of uh, Indigenous peoples. No, flat out. That's what it's about. And um, we think that you can do that with private capital where it hasn't been done. In, in a different way, in a sort of indigenous values-led epistemology way. So that it looks and acts and feels a little bit different. We often talk about decolonizing the investment process, which we're trying to do. I can tell you it's long, it's painful, there's no roadmap, there's no destination. We're just trying it um, with each. We've got three of our portfolio companies in the room, so they kind of chuckle when I say it's painful. But just trying to figure out how to do it in a good way for founders so that you keep wealth, and wealth means a lot of different things, 
inside indigenous communities and indigenous hands so that can continue to be rebuilt because that's been missing from indigenous and other communities uh, over the last couple hundred years. That's one side of the shop. That's the investment impact fund. It's enterprise level. That's what we're about. Um, on the other side is something that really excites me, it gets me up every day, and that's outcomes-based finance. And that's really, if you think of one as enterprise, the other one's community level. At community level, we look at complex problems facing our peoples and seeing if we can apply innovative financial tools uh, to address that. And we've done a lot of work in outcomes finance and outcomes-driven contracts. And what we call them is community-driven outcomes contracts. It's the idea is because we center the community in it, and the community is the co-designer, co-collaborator, their priorities need to be met. And what that means in reality is you make different decisions about how funding is used and constructed and designed in, in the construction of your interventions and how you maintain relationships. And for us, it's all about the relationship. Uh, I would say the, the portfolio companies that we're invested in are more like our family than our, they're not transactions to us. Um, and so, um, I kind of see them as family. They, they may not like to hear that, but you know, one of them actually is family. That's a whole different story <laughs> that I didn't know at first. Um, but um, so outcomes-based finance, though, is where we onboard private capital and have government be an outcomes purchaser in the space. And um, it has a lot of potential to disrupt 200 years of really bad federal government programming for indigenous people. That's really what it's about. Let's overturn that apple cart because it's not working. Uh, and we're in climate and health, uh, both we think uh, the protection of Mother Earth and health because indigenous people, the, the health trajectories are, are very bad. They're going down uh, continuously, even with modern medical care, but it's the, the type of care that you get. This is not a new argument for any country uh, in minority communities. So that's what we do um, on the two sides of the shop and trying to, we're trying to disrupt. So. That's great, thank you. Um, so Richard and Kate would love to hear your, your reflections um, on um, the, the community-driven approach um, that Jeffrey is talking about, and you know how do you see that in, in your work as well? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> community is is driving whether you want to call it place-based investing or, or whatever term you want to use, neighborhood economics. Um, you know, Canada also has a very rich history of the credit union movement and the cooperative movement, very connected to the ground. Um, and, um, you know, some of those players by U.S. standards would be equivalent to, you know, some of the savings and loans organizations here. So, you know, I, I think that's another active part of, of, the, of the, the, the ecosystem is, the history, strong history, especially on the prairies around cooperative and credit unions. Okay. Sure, from a, a community-driven approach, I would say as a developer and a manager of, of uh, property across um, Toronto and Hamilton area, we focus greatly on engaging with local neighborhoods and community stakeholders. Um, it includes uh, working directly not only with neighbors, but local organizations, seeking the wisdom of indigenous elders, for example, in the design of our places, um, and looking to understand from the people what it is that these places mean to them, how they can serve the community better, what their needs are uh, that are currently being met, and what opportunities there are through development to enrich the community. Great, thank you. 
Um, Kate, uh, Tass um, has been in real estate investing for many years, and you're now becoming much more intentional and having talked with you about your work, I, I have to say it's just inspiring how intentional you are about impact in a for-profit company. Um, how are you making this transition? And, um, you know, impact measurement is, and management is such a big topic. Um, so feel free to, to get into the weeds. Thanks, Jonas. Yes. Um, so to give a little bit of background, I've been with TAS for about 15 or 16 months now. Before that, I, I worked with them um, as a consultant to help build their impact framework. And to me, it was such an incredible opportunity um, meeting Mazia, who's second generation uh, president and CEO, CEO of the business, um, to find somebody who was willing to look at impact very, very holistically. I've worked in the space for over a decade now. And one of the things that I personally <laughs> felt was that a lot of impact measure and management would cherry pick certain stories of impact without looking at potential negative impacts. <laughs> Um, and it also often did not shine the mirror or reflect the mirror on the organization itself and how it was operating. And so I had very early on some very deep conversations with Maz about how to approach impact and the lens that we needed. And I uh, was very, very inspired by his willingness to be very transparent and very ambitious. And so our impact framework contains uh, four commitments. The first is it starts with us, and that is our corporate impact commitment. It looks at how we operate. It looks at our diversity, equity, and inclusion. It looks at our procurement, uh, health and well-being, um, everything to do with the way that we structure our funds, et cetera, um, and even the opportunities uh, for investors to participate in how we are marketing our funds. Um, beyond that, we have three project delivery, um, three project delivery commitments. Uh, these include tackling climate change, which is our environmental pillar, which we consider table stakes today. What's really interesting about the way we approach this is that we have a zero harm target across all of the material issues uh, for real estate. So that includes embodied carbon and operating carbon, of course. We also look at our entire um, material supply chain uh, and building circularity, among other issues. So we set minimum performance standards, which are grounded in today's best practice standards, which include leadership in energy and environmental design, uh, living building challenge, and other certification programs. And we set those leading standards as our minimum targets. And we've actually also set break-even targets that we consider truly sustainable. So we will be reporting backwards from the break-even point. We have two social pillars as well. Um, the first is broadening affordability and equity. We have a commitment to deliver at least 10% affordable or below market um, space in our commercial and residential buildings. And we're also working actively to create more opportunities for uh, equity building participation in our markets. We have a huge affordability crisis in housing at the moment in Toronto and other key markets in Canada. So we're looking at how we can get more people into an equity uh, participation uh, position sooner in their lifespan in order to benefit from uh, the, the real estate, uh, the real estate market more generally, but also to benefit from the community and the vibrancy that they are participating in. Um, finally, we have building social capital, which is. Uh, perhaps nearest and dearest to my heart. And that is where we look at our deep community engagement from the moment that we um, acquire a site and start to think about what 
the vision is for that site, we engage deeply with our communities, all the way through to the delivery of community infrastructure and community programming. We look at things like uh, um, social capital. We've been partnered with the Toronto Foundation. Uh, we're very excited for a report that's coming out in November this year, which is a um, it's the second measure of social capital across Toronto and now across Canada, looking at levels of neighborhood trust, um, inclusion, uh, community connection. Um, it also looks at civic participation and civic um, engagement amongst residents. Uh, so we're very excited about that study coming out and we'll be looking at social capital, well-being, quality of life in our communities and our commercial projects. Great. Thank, thank you, Kate. And I really encourage you to, um, uh, if you're interested in learning about how to authentic authentically measure community impact, um, I encourage you to chat with all of our panelists. And to that, um, I'm going to turn to both Jeffrey and Richard to say, you know, how do you look at impact measurement? You know, particularly in an indigenous context, context where impact can have very different meanings. Um, for communities and for capital. And then Richard, how, um, you know, how do you negotiate this since you're really bringing different partners together? You know, how do you approach the, the question of impact measurement in a very authentic way? Okay, I'll give it a go here. Um, so of course we're an impact fund, so we're all about measuring impact. Um, that said, it's not an easy road from A to B on measuring impact in Indigenous communities and, and within Indigenous populations, especially from a venture capital side of things with enterprises. Um, we actually took a couple years, to be honest, to kind of do some internal navel-gazing about what that could look like. And the way that we did that is really by engaging our portfolio companies and having long conversations uh, about you know what people thought their impact was and if they think that how did they think they were getting from A to B on that and then kind of looking back at indigenous epistemology and we we built the Raven indigenous impact measurement framework which really is a, a if anything a value statement and a statement about the sort of process that you need to use to engage folks on measuring impact because a it's never paid for is my first comment. Impact measurement is never paid for. No one wants to pay for it, but everyone wants it done. And um, it can be very time consuming, very exhausted, both for you, for you as a fund or fund managers and for the recipients of the investees or portfolio companies. Um, that said, I think, you know, I learned a lot from the portfolio companies in terms of what they valued and how much time and effort put into it uh, as a group because everyone wants to have impact for our people. You know, as a next stage, we then started to roll that out and looked globally at impact indicators. And there is a lot of them out there in different systems, right? You take IRIS uh, out of GEN, you, you take, you know, IMP measurements. Um, there's an indigenous navigators impact measurement that came out of Denmark, all kinds of interesting systems and sort of correlated them together and see where, where it falls across that, including the SDGs. And what we discovered was probably more important, at least to me, was the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and can the connective tissue between what Indigenous companies are doing, what we as Raven are doing, our own impact, which is something we have to look at, and uh, are we making progress on the goals that you know uh, 
uh, every state at the UN agreed to eventually. It took Canada and US a while to get there, but they agreed eventually. Um, so that is, I think, the most exciting thing. And then what we did is we wrapped all of Raven's fund activities to one of the UN, uh, one of the UN articles, Article 3. And that has been really personally fulfilling for me to see the connection start to emerge in what we're doing. So you're not just placing capital and helping businesses grow, but you're actually measuring you know, the lives of people. On our other work, which is outcomes finance, we start with the goal that we want to get to. Like you're, you're starting, I want to reduce diabetes by this much and this many people in this period of time, and this is how we're going to do it. So we start at impact. Uh, so somewhat easier because you're not doing a post facto, uh, and somewhat harder because you've got to choose targets, right? Mm -hmm. So there's all kinds of choices involved in it. So that's how I talk about impact. Mm -hmm. That's great. Richard, how do you negotiate um, uh, the different ideas of different stakeholders, and how does Impact United think about measurement? Yeah, thanks. So it's, it's a good segue from what Jeff said at the end. I mean, I think what we're committed to with, with the folks that we're working with and, and, and doing this kind of work together with is addressing this issue at the outset. So the due diligence templates and processes we use basically drive out what those measurements are going to be. In many cases, they're actually part of the, 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 the actual financial agreement. Um, in some cases, they drive some of the incentives on the financial side so that mm -hmm. if these impact measurements are met, the financial terms become less onerous for the for the entrepreneur or the business. Um, and, you know, that sounds easy, but, uh, but I've been involved in too many, quote unquote, impact reports where it's like, oh, well, now's, now we're going to ask the, the, the company we've invested in, you know, what are the shared impact goals? It's, so you need to do it up front and you need to do it in a, in a, in a way that, uh, uh, as Jeff said, is quarter the business and, and quarter the mission. And so that's what we're trying to embed as a, as, a, as a process. Thank you for listening to this episode of Money and Meaning. If you were inspired by the conversation and are interested in getting more involved with the SOCAP community, join us at SOCAP 23 in October. As a podcast listener, you will save $50 off the current ticket price with the code MONEYMEANING23. That's all caps, M O N E Y. M-E-A-N-I-N-G 23. Register at SoCapGlobal.com. We look forward to seeing you in October. Be sure to subscribe to Money and Meaning wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of our next episode's release.